everybody and welcome to season four of this ridiculous, ridiculous James Bond journey that we just can't stop going on. It's a crazy uh, my train. Name is, <laughs> it's a crazy train. My name is Scott Powell and I'm joined today not by my two esteemed co-hosts, but just by my single esteemed co-host, Joshua Dwight Gordon-Taylor, otherwise known as the BFG. That is me. And yes, I am single. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you, you didn't know that. that yeah. So I had to. You opened that door. I had to walk through it. Sorry, you did. Um, you you walked you walked through it nicely, man. You walked through it nicely. Seriously though, um, yeah, great to be here. Another season of uh, Bond by Numbers, and why not start it out with Literary Gun Barrel? Yeah, we're going to. Uh, we we said at the end of last season that we were going to do a couple of Literary Gun Barrel episodes, and we're going to preface this season's content with one right now to start us off on season four. We're going to be looking down the gun barrel at the first John Gardner novel, License Renewed, from 1982. Am I right in saying that, or is it 1980? First publication was in 81. 1981. Yep. Well done. Well done. Do you know what's funny, buddy? Like, I was quite proud of myself when I went on to the eBay, the old eBay, and got us a couple of uh, a couple of old, fun kind of first paperback editions. I've got a really yeah. glitzy Danielle Steele type one. You can see, oh, you with, can with see like that. Oh, yeah. with like the embossed thing. That's yeah. right. Yeah. I, but, I, think, uh, I think this is pretty uh, stark. Yours is nice, yeah. I deliberately got you one with an action helicopter on the front. <laughs> which looks, you know a, which looks a lot like the Free Your Eyes Only helicopter. <laughs> it does, yeah, it does. But uh, look what happened to mine. The glue, 40 years later, <laughs> has completely come out. My book fell apart while I was reading it. I uh, couldn't even turn the renewed. pages. <laughs> yeah. License to yeah. be glued. Mm. <laughs> License unglued. There you go. Yeah, well done. Anyway... Um, yeah, we're here all year, guys. We're here all year. More of this gold, <laughs> comedy gold coming at you. But no, we're not joined by Jeff today. Jeff is uh, not done the mission with us for reading the book, but he will be back with us when we start our season in uh, in full, I guess. In full, is that what you want to say? Yeah. yeah. Speaking of Jeff, uh, I saw him for like the first time, like in person for about a, more than a year now. Um, well, I did see him in a parking lot when I... <laughs> Yeah. Purchased Ooh, shady. a PlayStation 4 off of his mm-hmm. off of his girlfriend, um, mm-hmm. partner, Rachel. But um yep. I, I was at uh, their place last night and we played some board games. It was pretty fun. Nice. And bringing it back to Bond, we you and me and Jeff will be doing a board game spin-off what if episode, won't we, this season coming up? Yeah. We will. But we definitely Look have to, if, to that. If you're ever in North America, you know. If the Spectre game is out, we definitely have to have a round of Spectre. Yeah, there's probably a better chance right now of me joining Spectre than getting back to Canada in the next uh, year, I think. But hey, you, you know, who knows? I, I'd like, I got my kids. My kids got to get back there in the next couple of years, but we'll, we'll see how it works out, buddy. Indeed. So yeah, I John miss Gardner. you guys, but I'm so, that's why I'm so pleased that we can do this. You know, I do miss you guys, but I'm so pleased that, that we can uh, keep up the bond nonsense, the bond sense, if you will. The bond, the bond sense. Yeah, Actually, absolutely. That would have been a good, that would have been a good name for our show. Had we not gone bond by numbers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The bond sense. Yeah. Darn it. And, <laughs> I know, right? It, it's so good. <laughs> it's in, so hind, in hindsight, good. it's so damn yeah. good. Okay, well, we could rebrand. We can rebrand. We, yeah, we can rebrand if we want to, because really, what we're doing now is we're not doing the bond by numbers anymore. We're basically doing bond sense, essentially, is is what we are. Like that's true. Yeah, bond sense. Yeah. Anyway, yes, buddy, we are here to talk about John Gardner's uh, License Renewed. Now, unlike some of our previous literary gun barrels, which have been really in-depth with, like, you know, secondary research, we went at this one a little differently, didn't we, Josh? We just went for a wham-bam, thank you, John. Yeah, this is a drive-by as if, you know, it was um, Bond and Tracy. <laughs> Saab 900 Turbo. Yeah. <laughs> this is Saab to ride turbo. into a construction pit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> um, incidentally, I actually yeah. read a John Gardner novel years and years ago. I read the okay. adaptation of License to Kill. And this yeah. was when I was young and I was into James Bond and I saw it like in a um, in a bookstore. And as I opposed it to now when uh, you're old and you're into James Bond. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But um, I remember reading that book and um, I'm, I think uh, a family friend was into John Gardner's Bond and he left a couple of books in the collection. There was one called um, Nobody Lives Forever. And That's right. uh, I yep. think License Renewed was in that pile too, but I mm-hmm. never got mm-hmm. into them. Anyway, well, we're, we're that's my experience with John Gardner as James Bond. Yeah. yeah. Last last season, you might remember everybody, we uh, we took you through 
uh, Colonel Sun by Kingsley Amos as the first non-Fleming Bond. And uh, we're continuing that road trip for you. So this won't be a long episode, but it will be a fun one, we hope, to uh, as we take you through the strokes of this John Gardner novel. So strap yourselves in, get a comfy drink, and we will see you on the other side. Now, Josh, you've got some fast facts on John Gardner, the author, and then I'll break into a plot summary. Why don't you take over, sir? All right. So John Gardner was born November 20th, 1926 at uh, Seaton de Laval in Northumberland, England, and died on August 3rd, 2007 at mm. uh, Basingstoke, Hampshire, England. Mm-hmm. He was 80 years old. Um, he served in the Home Guard in World War II when he was only 13 years old. Uh, he served in the Royal Marines 42 Commando, but believed himself to be the worst commando in the world, quote-unquote, despite <laughs> having some proficiency with small arms and a knowledge of explosives. Now, this was after the war when he served in the commando uh, yeah, unit. sure. He wanted to be a priest, an Anglican priest, and he studied theology at St. John's College at Cambridge, but mm-hmm. it came to a point where he did not believe a word he was saying, and... He left left the church in 59, and he started as a, out as a drama critic with Stratford-upon-Avon Herald. Hmm. Okay. Which is, like, which is like a newspaper for that area, yeah, and yeah. he was like the drama sure. theatrical critic. Cool. So he must well, have a lot taken of like in his, in his seminary day. studies, uh, he must have done like some literature in his seminary studies, and maybe that kind of poked him towards that, very possible, you know, maybe read mm-hmm. some Milton, mm-hmm. some Shakespeare, and that kind of got him in that direction. Oh, yeah. For sure. Around this time, he admitted to his alcoholism and had a tough bout with it, as many do. His therapy, it turned out, was writing. He wrote an autobiography about his life called Spin the Bottle, which was published in 1964. And it's been considered by scholars to be probably one of his greatest contributions to English literature. But it's relatively unknown because Gardner is widely known for being the guy that took up Fleming's mantle. Which is funny, hey, because Kingsley Amos came out from under that. For sure. I mean, he, he was established beforehand, I know, but yeah, he he wasn't marked as that, I guess, if you know what I mean. Like, he was a writer outside of that, respected and reputed. Now, in 64, after he did his bio, his uh, semi-auto bio uh, release, he, perhaps inspired by Fleming or not inspired, uh, he did kind of a parody to Fleming's work by publishing his first Boise Oaks novel. And this was called The Liquidator. Mm. Now, Oaks is an everyday man mistaken for a badass action hero who gets recruited into the spy business. So think of like, you know, uh, Cary Grant in North by Northwest, you know, yeah, getting yeah. kind of caught up into that sort of wrapped up situation. Or John, John Buckins, Richard Haney. Or Richard mm. Haney, exactly. Now, Ian Fleming's longtime rival... Or so this person would like to consider himself as, or even be acknowledged as, uh, Anthony Boucher. Anthony Boucher of the New York Times <laughs> praised Good Gardner's man. work. There uh, of was course a, he did. <laughs> yeah, there was a film made from the Liquidator, and seven novels followed. In his other writings, Gardner also dived into the world of Sherlock Holmes, writing on the character of Professor Moriarty. Cool. Very cool. Yeah. Probably responsible for a lot of like the um, popular image of Moriarty. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe so. Yeah. Because not a lot of them in the canon, that's for sure. Definitely not, no. But his association with Bond franchise, with the sorry, but his association with the Bond franchise began officially in 1979, and that's when Ian Fleming Productions, or Guild Rose, as it was known then, offered him mm-hmm. to continue the James Bond series. Gardner took the Bond novels where they left off in terms of the characters, um, but he did give, but he does give Bond sort of a Reed Richards kind of silver wings. Uh, to indicate, you know, that the character has aged in yeah. terms of like a little bit metaphor- yeah. metaphorically, uh, and then he teleported the series from the seventy, from like the late sixties to the eighties. Like, mm-hmm. there's not even explanation. Like, it's as if, as if this is basically right after C- Colonel Sun, essentially. Yeah, yeah, um, totally. With maybe like a little bit of a gap between. Uh, reactions were mixed, but many Bond fans were glad to see Bond back on the bookshelves. Sure. Yeah. Of course. This is a great airport read, you know? This is an airport read. 
It is definitely an airport read. He wrote the mm-hmm. novel adaptations for License to Kill and for Goldeneye. And boom, starting boom, with License boom, Renewed boom. in 1981, he wrote 14 original Bond novels and then was replaced mm-hmm. by Raymond Benson. And our yeah. friend Gardner uh, died of esophageal cancer. Uh, sorry, he was diagnosed with esophageal cancer. Uh, and that's the reason for his retirement. And then he died of suspected heart failure in failure in 2007. Rest in yeah, peace, John Gardner. Of 80. Yeah. Rest Thank in you peace, for, John Gardner. Thanks mm-hmm. for keeping the literary torch up for James Bond. Absolutely. And I'm really excited, buddy, because I love reading books with you. You know that we got our other podcast, Lighting the Pipes, which is dedicated just to crime fiction and the different things we do in our spare time when we have a chance. Mm-hmm. And we've actually just recorded a great episode on um, the talented Mr. Ripley recently. So if you're interested in that, everybody, get yourself over to Lighting the Pipes and uh, check us out there. We'll talk you through some good crime. But getting back to the point, um, shameless plug over. I'm glad that we're going down this road because I'm excited about 14 books, you know. Uh, I'm excited about our literary gun barrel breathing new life into the next couple of seasons. And it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. Indeed. So thank you for those facts. Shall we then get over to a plot summary? And uh, I will let everybody know what this book is all about. Caution, spoilers ahead. Ooh, ooh. So, license renewed. Although the novel begins with an officious reminder of public service cuts and department slashing, M reminds Bond in their opening exchanges that he's not really going to take away his license to kill. He's just going to keep it on the lowdown. Good thing, too, because Bond takes it off the leash in this adventure. But what is the adventure? Why has Bond been called back into work after just returning home to his new country cottage outside of Hazelmere? And why are the Director General of MI5 and the head of the Mets uh, Police Special Branch waiting in M's office? Well, it would seem that well-known anti-capitalist terrorist Franco Oliviero Queso Criado, code Foxtrot for short, has been quite active lately. Having built his reputation through extortion, kidnapping, hijacking, and supplying terrorists with arms, Franco has recently aligned himself with retired nuclear physicist Dr. Anton Murek, the present Laird of Mercaldi. Murek resides, as you might expect a Scottish Laird to do, in a guarded castle overlooking a wee highland village in Kirk. As Bond says to M, quote, Not a healthy mix, an international terrorist and a renowned nuclear physicist. Been one of the nightmares for some time, hasn't it? Well, Spidey sense all a tingle, M instructs Bond to intercept Murek's inner circle at Royal Ascot, where one of his horses will be racing. Not tough to see where a view to a kill got its grist, people. Yeah. He'll need to ingratiate <laughs> He'll need to ingratiate himself somehow and earn their trust, and then get close enough to see what's going on up there in the Highlands, exactly what Franco's up to with the current Laird of Mercaldi. We know a little bit more than Bond and M already, though, because Gardner has given readers a fairly detailed scene between Franco and Murek, which foreshadows enough broad strokes to inform that some of the world's most powerful sites of nuclear power will soon play parts as pawns in a game of world ransom or destruction. Well, opportunity knocks. You see, it just so happens that Bond has recently been studying escapology, card tricks, and sleight of hand for dummies in his spare time. (laughs) sharpening his tradecraft, he conveniently concocts a ploy to snatch and then return a valuable prize necklace of pearls from Murek's lovely young ward and fashion model for Rousselin House, Lavender Peacock. Hedging his bets that this will be enough to earn them the respect to get an extended audience, 007 prepares himself for a day at the races. Before he leaves, however, Gardner introduces Bond and us to a new senior member of Q Branch. Wait for it. Cute. Described as a, quote, tall, elegant, leggy young woman with sleek and shiny straw-colored hair, it is Cute's job to equip Bond with all the bugs, listening devices, and tools that he'll need to become a walking listening device. Of course, she's a hypersexualized geek fantasy. Of course, all the guys chase her embarrassingly. And yes, of course, where others fail, Bond succeeds. And before long, he's whining and dining the strong-minded modern girl. It seems not even a liberated 80s woman can be immune to, or above, Bond's magic penis. So, Bond hits up Ascot in full day dress and starts by placing a bet on Murek's horse. Though it looks rougher and somehow less qualified than the rest of the field, 
Bond somehow knows that it'll win. Before the race, Bond gains access to Murek's inner sanctum by carrying out his thievery-retrievery gig with aplomb. He spends key moments with the party and does his best to size everyone up, especially Lavender Peacock, who he senses isn't a big fan of her position as kept ward of the Laird. There's fear behind her eyes. Anyway, the plan is pulled off swimmingly. Bond convinces Murek of his usefulness as a mercenary and gains an invitation to visit the Laird at his Scottish castle. Taking it in strategic intervals, Bond travels north to the Western Highlands in his new Saab 900 Turbo, outfitted to the max. Arriving at the castle, he is welcomed, fed, and rested, though he finds himself more a prisoner than a guest with self-locking doors. Lavender Peacock makes an appearance in the evening to thank Bond and to reaffirm for him that, yep, she's as unhappy and as afraid as he thought, and we knew she needed to, be. Well and truly locked in, the two spoon innocently on the bed until a respectably silly enough hour arrives and Bond calls to be let out for some morning exercise. It's not long before he's tested against the might of Caber, the Laird's Scottish champion, Reed assassin henchman bully. Bond wins the fight using his brain and one of Cute's lighters and some decent fighting. Caber's not happy about it, but who cares about the Scottish Highlander? Like English history, Bond gets the job done against the old foe. Having earned his trust, Bond gets the same, returned, when Murek, in full talking villain flourish, reveals the details of his plan following a posh dinner. Murek leads Bond to a torture chamber of sorts in the bowels of his castle. Yeah, what castle is complete without one, really? Of it's, full of, it's full of curios and hobby horrors that the Laird enjoys keeping, just in case. It's here that he bears all to his new trustee. Through Franco... Merrick has enabled a group of altruistic terrorists to apprehend control rooms of six selected nuclear reactor facilities around the world. The operation's code name is Meltdown, which is more than a little on the nose, Gardner, as that's exactly and most obviously what's going to happen if Murek's demands are not met. Instead of running away with billions in ransom, however, Murek intends to take revenge on the International Atomic Energy Research Commission and complete the project that he had kicked out. He wants to control a monopoly over a new model nuclear reactor. The IAERC didn't take too kindly to Murek's hungry capitalist ambitions, even if they were rooted in some smart science, so they ousted him from the group. Murek believes he's doing right by the world and wants to see his fantasy project realized, no matter the cost and economic burden. But his colleagues have said, uh, no, no, not yet, thanks. We don't trust you quite enough. So he's doing the only reasonable thing in response threatening a nuclear holocaust in collaboration with terrorists. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Naturally. Bond, Bond plays it straight, acting every inch the hired mercenary, and Merrick contracts him to kill Franco, thus removing any links between himself and the terrorists. Bond agrees to the hit, but he tries to escape from the castle at night and bring word to M of what's going on. A chase ensues, but 007 doesn't make it, not even with the Saab's help. He pitches into a construction pit and is collected by Kaber, Mirik, and the rest. Goldfinger style. He, <clears throat> very much. When he wakes from his concussion, he's greeted by Mary Jane Mashkin, who's Mirik's co-conspirator and herself a doctor of some painful skill. He is strapped to a chair in the torture chamber. There, they drug Bond with truth serum in an effort to reveal more behind the curtain of his cover story, leaked by M, and which, up till now, had done the number very nicely. Unsuccessful in drawing out the truth of his identity, he is ushered along with the rest of Murek's entourage onto a private plane operated by the Laird's own Alden Aerospace. There, they fly to Perpignan, at the seat of the Pyrenees, from where Murek intends to switch planes and oversee Operation Meltdown from somewhere high above the Mediterranean. In transit from plane to hangar, Bond manages an escape at the airport and scurries to the nearby motorway, where he is successful in getting a ride into the city. There, he discovers the annual Fête de la Saint-Jean is warming up, uh, which should provide him ample cover. It's in this electric energy of traditional food, crowds, dancing, and fire that Bond reaches a telephone booth at last and gets a message to M. Well, nearly. He's cut off before he can complete the call by one of Murek's men. Bond dispatches of him quickly and makes his way to the palace of the Kings of Majorca, where Roussillon Fashion are hosting their new show. There, Bond intercepts Franco, attempting to kill Lavender Peacock, the true heir to the Mercaldi seat, but more on that in a moment. He shoots Franco, but only causes him to miss his target, hitting Mashkin instead. 
Bond pursues Franco out of the streets again, and a brief cat and mouse ends with Bond killing the terrorist dead, more for his own moral compass than for Murek's contract. But the action attracts the notice of Kaber and Murek's other heavies. Once again, 007 finds himself captive of the Laird of Makadi. Captive within an Alden Aerospace facility, Bond is subjected to more of Murek's talking villain performance, during which he learns further details about Operation Meltdown and, interestingly, the death of the Laird's brother and sister-in-law, the true heirs to the throne of Mercaldi, as it were. Desperate for recognition, Murek engineered the flying tragedy that ended their lives and assumed guardianship of their daughter, Lavender Peacock. Documents to prove the rightful ancestry still live and sit locked away in a safe in the castle. Peacock, Bond finally understands, was only ever kept on to act as Murek's pawn in a public image charade and a beautiful front for his business stage. With this information stored away for safekeeping, Bond prepares for his bird's-eye view of Operation Meltdown. Murek intends to drop Bond and Lavender from his C-141 Starlifter and its holding pattern thousands of feet above the Mediterranean. M, meanwhile, has managed to piece together enough of a trace from Bond's half-call in Perpignan to take action and descend upon Alden Aerospace, but by the time the authorities arrive, Murek is long gone skybound. Things go relatively well for 007 aboard the control plane, however, and Murek never quite gets the chance to throw Bond from the plane because he works out a maneuver to escape the restraints. Choosing his moment carefully, Bond does just this, incapacitates Murek, and then shoots him down. Bond takes control swiftly and manages to stop Meltdown by intuiting and issuing the stand-down codeword LOCK over the radio to each of the terrorist groups. But all is not quite over. There's still a final showdown with Kaber left to go. Returning from his coffee to find his employer, and livelihood, bleeding on the floor, Kaber enters a rage and the fight spills out into the cargo hold, which leads to some high-flying stakes, especially when the bay doors open, a la Living Daylights. Lavender stabs Kaber, and Bond finishes him off, however. And with that, the first, and the last, of Murek's real physical threats free falls to his death. When the plane lands and M's men come aboard, Murek has disappeared. Yes, his operation had been spoiled, but there was still one final job to do, ensure that the rightful heir to the Macaldi throne sees her day. Bond recruits Bill Tanner, chief of staff, and the two rush to Mercaldi Castle, knowing that the Laird's private documents are sitting there still in the safe. But also, they know that Murek will rush there to collect his secrets. They just beat him, and a brief final showdown occurs, void of much dialogue, and Bond puts an arrow through Anton Murek's upper chest with one of his own antique crossbows from his torture room. Gardner's epilogue is pat, but fitting. Bond is reunited with Lavender Peacock, but only for a few moments, as she is heading off to study estate management so that she can run her new home and exercise her new entitlements as Lady of Macaldi with proper snoot and circumstance. The narrative ends with Bond promising to visit her soon, and we presume with a newly refitted Saab 900 Turbo. Or not at all. Or not Or at maybe all. after a couple of months. <laughs> as yeah. we know, his relationships are pretty mercurial. <laughs> quite that's a nice word for it yeah quite mercurial indeed so there you go everybody that that's the a rundown probably more detailed than you wanted of that book but there it is you did neglect so, the the rock the uh, green, like the rocket into the into uh the layered's back yes. though <laughs> well, listen, if I was to talk about all the equipment in the plot summary, we'd have nothing to talk about for our angle. So why don't we get on to that, buddy, and uh, remind our listeners what the angle is all about. The angle is our acronym for reviewing the James Bond novels, the literary gun barrel. A is for allies and adversaries. So, you know, the peeps who help Bond out and, of course, all the antagonists that he's set against, both the heavies mm -hmm. and the uh, big bads. Then we have N for narrative. That's the story, how the how it's written, how it flows. We have the girls uh, or women. The Bond women, women is what yeah. we prefer, but girls mm -hmm. fits the acronym. So that's what we went for. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, something that we rate because it is a James Bond novel after all. We don't rate them. We don't rate them like on their appearance. We rate them on their agency in the story as characters. Yes, uh, just like that to make that quite detail. clear. <laughs> yeah, I'd say. And we'll reveal that when we get to that, to that particular category. You'll see that's we that is yes, our yes. intention. Mm -hmm. Indeed. But a preface is good, though. That's, that's important. Yeah, it's all about the preface. And so, 
The locales is our L in the angle. So that's the vistas and locations that James Bond finds himself and how how does that feel in terms of us absorbing the story, you know, living the story. And then finally, another uh, perennial for James Bond is the equipment, E, the last word of the angle. So the last letter of the angle. And all of these mm-hmm. are written out of five. Or sorry, all of these are sure. rated out of five. Rated out of five, yeah. They sure are. And that scoring gives us an index which we can use to rate the stories, rate the books, um, at least inform our ranking of them all, which is what we did earlier on. Anyway, let's uh, let's get straight into it, buddy. Let's talk over the allies and adversaries here in this. We've got Anton Murek, we've got Kaber, we've got some faceless terrorists. Donau. Um, Franco. Yeah, indeed. Yes, indeed. Franco, of course, yeah. I wanted so, more from Donau. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you? He seemed a bit more interesting than Kaber. Kaber just seems like he was being like the typical like Jaws kind of villain. Well, As if like Jaws was played by Groundskeeper Willie or something like that. <laughs> I, I thought that Donald was a little bit more like, wasn't he the butler? Wasn't he the dude who he just was, came in he and He was served? like, he just seemed like there was something more to him, but then he gets like taken out by like the, uh, Rocket. the, the uh, the old school pistol, right? The, um, the, oh, of course. The, uh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. The flintlock. Yeah. 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 Right. So what did you think of Murek? Uh, I mean, we've seen villains in the series of films. We've seen villains in the novels before. This guy reminded me of one of those megalomaniacal, somewhere between Drax and Elliot Carver. This is kind of how I'm picturing him act. He's a little short squat guy who's got this inferiority complex, a bit Napoleonic. Um, He's strange. He's strange. You know, like clearly a genius, but um, people don't trust him. And you can understand why. Yeah, no, I totally agree. So... Yeah, Drax and Carver is perfect. I also want to say a little bit of Blofeld just because of the whole... Yeah, a little um, bit, I guess, yeah. The title, you know, the title like him being like some kind of, mm-hmm. of nobility when he's actually not, you know? So Yeah, that's that, true. That, There's that a lot of that sort of majesties thing going on in here. Yeah, there is that sort of needing to claim it. But he's more gregarious. He's more gregarious and social than uh, Blofeld. Telly Savalas and Blofeld was a bit gregarious, but... You know, yeah, the character but, but as he's written in the agree. book, mm-hmm. and a little bit of Kamal Khan, I guess you could say too, because he has like his castle and and whatnot and torture chambers down below. And that isn't that's an excellent shout. I hadn't thought of Kamal Khan, but yeah, he's he's great comparison actually. Good one, yeah. yeah. And they do mention that a lot of the Gardner, a lot of the Bond films following the Gardner novels mm-hmm. do take aspects of it, like the As- Royal Ascot, for example, is yeah. pulled into View View to a Kill. But that said, I think he was. I think he's a paint by numbers Bond villain. I definitely see mm-hmm. traces yeah. of characters of, of <laughs> amalgamations of, yeah. of various characters. And now that you mentioned Carver, I can totally see like even now like Jonathan Price with crazy hair playing this yeah. role. <laughs> totally, yeah. yeah, yeah. Back then, it would have been someone like I don't know Peter O'Toole or something like that, or Richard Harris or something. Richard Harris, maybe because he's a bit smaller, isn't he? Richard Harris, you see. What about Maguin? Uh, he would have been too. He would have been a bit too young for that time period, mm-hmm. though. He was. He would only be Malcolm like McDowell, his, maybe. McDowell, yeah, he would still be a little bit too youngish, though. Maybe it's hard I to think say. So. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, because gray, how, gray how, wig how, can go a long way. Yeah, how old is um, Merrick supposed to be? Like in his sixties. Uh, yeah, late fifties, I think. Yeah, late fifties, sixties. Yeah, maybe even someone like Olivier, maybe, or I don't know. Interesting. Can you ever imagine Laurence Olivier signing up to be a Bond villain in the 80s? <laughs> Alec Guinness was in Star Wars. I mean... Yeah, I know. That's true. That's very true. Yeah, put me in my place, back in my cage. That's it. Yeah. When people didn't know what Star Wars was going to be, like, they basically thought it was like a Flash Gordon, low-budget Hollywood film made yeah, by, like, a... Yeah, I know. That's true. That's true. That's very true. That was a silly comment yeah. on my part. Yeah, you're right. Uh, people do make decisions all over the place. You're right. Um, Maybe well, Peter Cushing, too. Uh, he would also be good in that role. Mm-hmm. So, what did you score out of five for the other? Or oh, no, let, let's continue. Continue talking about uh, Franco and and others. Franco, and so I guess you have Mary uh, Mary Jane Mashkin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's yeah, a who, villain. Who, I put her in the girls though too because she comes on to Bond and you know she tries to use him to test him as a sexual. Yeah, she is definitely a villain. Mm-hmm. She is a villain. And yeah. Anne Riley, that's her name Anne by Riley. the way. Yes. Anne Riley, yes. cute. Um, I think her character is interesting. <laughs> I like how you stretch I, the U. <laughs> yeah, cute. Yeah. Well, the, it's just ridiculous to me anyways. I shook <laughs> so my head ridiculous. when I read so that. Ridiculous. 
John Gardner was obviously like, I believe he didn't do that. Like in the sense of like, oh, this would be a good thing to put in there. Like this will be actually not taken serious. This will be taken seriously. I guarantee yes, you John yeah. Gardner wrote that in there because tongue that was cheek. kind of, that was him being tongue in cheek. Absolutely. Yes. And it, it is a name. It's not a name she goes by, but she does kind of accept, you know, she accepts that Bond calls her that, but it's, it's a name. It's a name, I guess, that represents a lot of that workplace bigotry, you know, that that's going on still everywhere. But um, but what's interesting though is that Bond talks about everyone being interested in her, but she actually goes after Bond herself, like when, she does, when he's yeah, testing his gun true. out, right? Yep. With doing the gadgets, testing the gun out, like she actually goes for him. And then there's, there's a whole situation where he invites her, where she where, where they go to dinner, and then she invites and then she invites him back to her apartment, giving so you know setting yes, so expectations, weird. and then she has like. She must have got Scaramanga's like hologram device or whatever he was using on that island yeah, yeah. to kind of turn the place into some bacchanalia location. And then all of a sudden hologram of herself in a negligee. And then all of a sudden <laughs> it's very bizarre. And then cock blocks him to destroy to use that term. But that's what happens here. It says, Oh, why don't we get to know each other and have some coffee or something? <laughs> and yeah. Bond wakes up in his bed the next day, in his own bed. Mm-hmm. So we know nothing happened there, right? So yeah. there was definitely a subversion of expectations. And, and that's cool. I did like that. Yeah. And that kind of sets up the the the, the, the John Gardner Bond where he's not interested into the in, into the sex as much as Fleming was in his novels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we're getting off track, and I'm sorry I took you there, if indeed I did. Let's get back to the adversaries and allies. We're talking Murek and Kaber. We got Kaber, Kaber Donnell. Yeah. Franco, he was kind of nondescript. He's a typical. He was kind of like to me, like almost like a nod to like Carlos the Jackal or something like that. That's what he was basically was like an all around mercenary type. Yeah, I think I think that's a good read on your part. And you know, I think I think that the coolest thing about Franco, I'm going to be honest, is his name. I just think it's. Yeah. I think he's one of my favorite names in the Bond book so far. Franco Oliviero Creso Criado. That's just yeah, a great name. He, that's a great. He definitely wanted more from his character, in, in my opinion. Yeah, and he and he kind of ends up being just kind of like he's not even like ideological terrorist. Like he's just basically not a mercenary, opportunist, just opportunist. Yeah, yeah, anarchist. Maybe he has his own beliefs in that. Who knows? Um, who we got? We got M. M is mm-hmm. the same M that we know from the same Bond novels. They still have yep. that father and yep. son relationship that's kind of muted down, but it's there. There is an expression in this book. Uh, and I don't exactly know what it is, but Bond does actually refer to him as like a father figure. He says it right on the page. Fleming also, I think, has Bond admit that at one point about M too. Mm-hmm. He does, yeah. But it, it is a bit more textured in Fleming's writing. I find here, like, Gardner feels like he doesn't have to texture it because... It's outright. It's, it's established, yeah, yeah. And we know that the license, the double O, the double O, the double O, sorry, the double O section has been sort of mm-hmm. closed down because of the new coming bureaucracy, this like Thatcher labor bureaucracy, I guess that's going through yes. England right now. Yeah. They've taken over with like, it's mothballed. It's, and it's but, mothballed but Bond only, is, only in the way that like the Tron arcade machines are mothballed in that film. Like you go in there and you take, you take the, the sheet off and they're all ready to go. You know what I mean? They're all ready to go. Exactly. And the thing is, is that, Bond is still there as M's number one. So even though he's just doing, you know, like whatever, either they're they're following, you know, the the trends of the new bureaucracy, but they're still basically double O section is there in in spirit, I suppose you could say. Okay, yeah. So I liked Caber. I did like Caber. I thought he was kind of interesting. And maybe that's because I'm here living in Scotland. Grand Keeper, Willie, so. I know. Well, I am here living in Scotland and I liked I liked him. I thought he was cool. Like, I know the Highland Games are kind of pastiche and they're kind of ridiculed outside of Scotland, but it's a real serious fete over here. It's a real sort of festival up in Braemar and the Highlands and County Angus and all of that, which is on kind of the opposite side of the, the country from where uh, the McCaldy seat is, uh, realistically. But no, man, I, I really liked him. And I, I was into that part of the story because I've been up that was, way quite a few times. You know, I thought it was cool. I thought that was neat. I have, Wrestling? I don't I thought, know about that, but... Yeah, Kaber to me is one of the reasons why I like, you know, I give like a, a somewhat extra point on because I found he was a really cool henchman. I actually found him more interesting than um, Murick himself. Like, I like the idea of like Scotsmen have always been portrayed as like kind of like cool badasses. And it's cool mm-hmm. to see like a Scotsman as a villain in this story mm-hmm. and an unrepentant mm-hmm. one as well. So I found that it was kind of like not really dealing with the stereotype that existed. Like, this guy is just a mean guy and he's a Scots and, you know, like, 
that's that's just it. Yeah. That's his character, and he's loyal to his laird, right? So there's. But I can see him more. enjoying taking an Englishman like Bond down a few pegs. I can totally and, see that because I I can relate to the whole uh, the the Scottish English thing, you know. And I, I it's a real it's a real conflict. Despite the Scots blood that Bond refers to in the uh, yeah in, totally. in the story, yeah. that's been kind of set up and, in his um in, in the canon. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like I really like Caber. I was thinking if they did a like if this was to be adapted into like a, a, a Bond film, like in, you know in the future series or whatever, um, the guy that would be a great Caber would be uh, someone I actually ran into when I was in Scotland. I didn't. I, I, uh, his name is uh, he's an actor named Rory McCann. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, he's best known for playing the Hound in Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. that guy would be a great Caber. Uh, you're going to tell the story of how you ran into him in Scotland? I would quite like I this. I was with your mom. I was yeah, with your mom. Uh-huh. And we were doing that like Highland tour before your wedding. Yeah. And we sky. went into, we were in Calendar, which is like yeah. a oh, calendar. Uh, yeah. Yeah. A calendar. And we were stopping by There's the tour bus stopped by just to, you know, just to look around and get a snack or whatever. And I walked mm-hmm. into a cafe and I was just getting, I was just getting a quick bite to eat, right? And I was sitting down with, with your mom, and we we're just getting a quick bite to eat. And then in the background, I heard this guy talking about like this big tall guy who was wearing completely black, and he had like a black baseball cap over his head—the typical celebrity hiding their identity kind of thing, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he was having a conversation with the owner about like uh, the logistics of using like. Uh, flaming arrows and then like how we have to film that and then how you know i had to do all this sword training for this sequence and then i looked up i looked up at the guy then his voice hit me I'm like that's clegane that is the hound and he's talking about <laughs> filming the battle of blackwater like in season two which just like aired it just right? came out yeah 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 so that was just like cool. crazy i was going to go up and talk to him your mother said like why don't you go talk to him like no 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 i'm not going to do that i just I don't know. I just felt weird to me to do that. You know, I kind of wish I did. I would have had some great Man. karma on Facebook if I posted the picture, you know, of me like in a picture with him. But you know what? It was just kind of a cool experience. And, I, yeah. and he was just, yeah. he was talking friendly, like, and he wasn't shy or he wasn't, he was talking openly to the guy. Maybe he even knows him. Who knows? Right. Well, exactly. And you don't just, want to interrupt that. Nah. Yeah, exactly. He was having a good You're time. You're not that guy, cool. Josh. You're not that guy. Yeah, but he was so eloquently speaking too, and he wasn't like mm. gruff like the hound. Like it was, it, it was a very kind of articulate way he was speaking. And uh, yeah, that was there cool. You go. Josh's yeah. casting so call, a, if you're listening. Yeah, Rory McCann for Kate. Rory McCann. Yeah, yeah, get in touch. Josh has got a job for you. All right, so um, let's let's move on. Oh, sorry, our scores. Yeah, our scores. What did you go for then? Tell me, tell me your mark for allies and adversaries out of five. Three and a half. Okay, I went for a three. It was more than passable, more than passable. But Murek is a little bit boring to me. He's a bit flat. And because yes. he's, he's like, I don't know. Talking he's, villain, stupid he's talking villain. villain. I do like the fact that he doesn't want to destroy the world. He wants to hold the world at ransom and will destroy it if he doesn't get his chance to show how he can save the world. But I find that kind of complicated. You know, like, yeah. you won't let me save the world through my safer nuclear reactors? Okay, then here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to destroy the world. Well, hang on. Do. What do you want to do? You know, he could have made it a bit more complex. I feel because, mm-hmm. I mean, but do you do that in a Bond novel? Right? Is that even necessary? This is the expectation yeah, yeah, is that he's yeah. not going to be too complicated. But the fact that he created Warlock, the anagram Warlock, out of the meltdown, and yeah, Locke kinda, was cool. the code. Locke was the code to stop it. Indicates mm-hmm. that he had full intention to stop it if he got yeah. his money. That's right. Or he might yep. have even been in a sense yep. where he may not have gone through with it, that he had a back yeah, that he had a way knows? of stopping it before it did happen. Mm-hmm. So it kind of showed that, you know, he believed in what he was doing. So I yes. found that a nice little nuance. Like he wouldn't have created that acronym and done that if he didn't have some way of like second feeling, you know, some second thoughts about, or I, I have a, I have a get, I have a getaway or a back mm-hmm. door to stop this, Yeah, you know, once it begins. So All right, I buddy. give that nuance. Yeah, yeah cool. So then uh, let's get on to the narrative. As a wham-bam, thank you, John, what do you give this one? Just as a readable, pick up, put it down, experience. Is it a Bond novel that's going to last the test of time? Is there a lot in here or just a nice ephemeral adventure? Like where where do you go with, or is it just the nadir so far? Where, where, Where do you put it? I enjoyed the story. I enjoyed how the plot flowed. I thought the plot flowed very well, despite some imperfections and some implausibilities and 
and the, you know the and how the and the villain actions it's a james bond novel so you got to consider those things you know so it's very difficult like if this was put to screen with like roger moore or timothy dalton i can kind of see it being you know like a pretty it could well directed it could have been a good story so i enjoyed it i have difficulty with some i found the characters kind of flat but um i want to pass it like mm-hmm. a three, I think is a good mark, but I also mm-hmm. just, enjoy, I think I, I enjoy the story as a whole, like how it flowed, but it did kind of drag on a little bit. So mm-hmm. I'll give it a three and a half. Okay. Yeah. I think this is a book that really could have benefited from having another location jump because it did, it did really well with the ones that we got. And I did like being in Perpignan for that short section, but there was a lot of it that a lot of the book, the content took place in like rooms, conversations in rooms. Like here we go to this place and we'll have a conversation in this room, action, 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 conversation in a room, action, conversation in a room, locked room, torture room, conversation. Like I just felt like it was, it, there wasn't a lot of jet setting. There wasn't, this wasn't a great travelogue, even though the Perpignan stuff was written nicely. And I think with some some eloquent admiration, the Scotland stuff is, is great. Um, but we're there inside the Merrick estate most of the time. I, I yeah. gave this a passing mark. I went two and a half for for my score to this. It's a straight ahead adventure. Like this is not a complicated read. It is a rather quick read. It's not as textured as Colonel Sun. The writing here no. is quicker. The writing here is less uh, on is is a little bit less forgiving. I think, um, or it doesn't. Well, maybe that's not the right expression. The writing here, I think, um, doesn't make excuses for itself. It it just goes. It just goes. You know what I mean? It feels like it's a Bond movie more so than a Fleming yeah. novel. Yeah, in that's my a opinion. great. That, that's a good like, point. Yep. Like Colonel Sun had a lot of the the travel porn that Fleming mm-hmm. had, mm-hmm. and there's no real travel porn in this except for maybe Perpignan, which you can tell that Gardner researched because that's he right. Puts all yeah. these details in there, right? Because I went and looked at the. Um, on, I went to go and look up Perpignan and about the kings of Mallorca, you know, absorb what I could. And it's a beautiful locale. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, for so, sure. I mean, yeah. Mm. So it was a good choice on his part. And I did, and being, and having been to Scotland, I did enjoy the locales of Scotland, but we'll get to that when we talk to, to the locales, but yeah. still, um, you went for yeah, a three, then, I, did you? I, I went for a three. Yeah. Cool. And I was at two and a half. So passable for sure. I, I don't think you're going to hate this. I wanted to give it three but, and a half, yeah. but three yeah. is what I'm settling on. Okay, cool, man. All righty. Uh, what about the girls, the ladies of the story? We have Lavender Peacock. We have Mary Jane Mashkin. Uh, her role, we have cute, uh, acute, if you will. And uh, I'll give you the first crack at this one. Um, I did like the subversion of what cute was. And she seemed kind of like a, someone who had her own agency. So I did enjoy that. That was refreshing. I could see Gardner was playing on that. And I think he, I think even though like as ridiculous as the character concept was, I think he... Mm-hmm. I can tell that he liked writing her character in in in, mm-hmm. in what in what what, yeah. what we read. He so was far. having fun, wasn't he? He was having fun. He was having fun, and I think he enjoys the expectation yeah. subversion right. that he does mm-hmm. with that character. Um, Mashkin and both Lavender were pretty much plot devices, essentially. Like there wasn't yeah. really much to them. Like why was Mashkin the way that she was? It was interesting because she had an American, and she's teamed up with this. But <sighs> what is the reason yeah. for her for her like psychopathy? Like. That's right. I didn't, I didn't yeah. What, that. What's her story? Yeah, she's interesting, and, and Gardner was... makes make makes it known that she's interesting because Bond finds her interesting, but we're never given an explanation. But not she's a, but, not but, a but not attractive. Villain. He's not attracted to her. No, though, no, no. Which is interesting. He wasn't, no, no. He's, he, yeah, was yeah he was going for the for the prettier, younger one, right? So, mm-hmm. and she's but just ephemeral. That... Lavender Peacock. She to, to me, she was just gosh, just ephemeral. Hey, eh? like didn't do I think much. It's just didn't... John Gardner going. Well, I got to have a Bond girl in here somewhere. So Lavender mm-hmm. Peacock is somewhat, you know, is a little bit, you know, body. So I'll use that as her name, Peacock, you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah. <laughs> Lavender is soft and, you know, nice. So yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So I just think that was just like his token Bond girl that he threw in there. And, and at least he gave her a background where she's like, the you know, the Lord of the Castle. But he yeah, never gave her any enough. agency yeah. whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, the only thing, well, she does kill Kaber, I suppose. That's true. Yep. And she does help Bond the best she can, and she is trapped. So, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'll give girls a three. Yeah, well, that's where I was. I was at a three overall for them, but I, I didn't feel at all as though 
he was interested in writing that younger character. Like, I, I kind of thought he was more interested in the Mashkin character, but knew that he had to play to what was expected of him with, like, you know, the sexier younger woman. And I, whatever. Yeah. I thought he Cute was, was more interesting. Yeah, yeah. You're right. He liked writing her. Her character concept, yeah. yeah. But what's funny is that, like, compared to Fleming, like, when you intro- you can tell how disinterested Gardner was with Lavender because when they mm-hmm. consummate their relationship in that cell, you know, yeah. near the end, it's like, it's not even, a, it's, it's literally like yada, yada, yada sex. And then that's it. Like there's, 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 there's no way, there's no description. There's like nothing that, you know, any kind of intimacy between the two characters. They're just there because the plot says they have to be there to get together. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. paint by mm-hmm. numbers. Totally. Yep. Paint by numbers bond. Okay. Um, <clears throat> bond by numbers, you might say. So you went for a three. I went for a three. Let's talk locations. We've only got two categories left. We'll finish this up swiftly. Locations. We've got Scotland. We've got Perpignan. We've got some bits of England. We've got a couple of airplanes and a lot of rooms that you know, don't have great dimensions. So um, this isn't this isn't a huge winner for me. There's uh, none of the travel log, as you, as you rightly say, that we're used to in the Bond story. There is travel log, but this isn't a great adventure of like... Uh, uh, being sinking in there's no lingering in the places here really is there there's well, no maybe in scotland in scotland there is yeah in scotland there's lingering yeah but importantly there, yeah so mm-hmm. as i said no you said there's no travel logs really in this story uh, except for you know just the details you wanted to put to make us feel as if we were in perpignan uh there's no travel porn and no food porn yeah, and food yeah. porn, I think, is very important when it comes to, like, the travelogue aspects in Fleming's writing because he's That's sitting point, down, yeah. he's ordering breakfast, mm-hmm. he wants something local, or he's eating something local. We don't really know, we don't get the sense of, like, the lingering, the lingering, as you said, in terms mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. of the locales. Scotland had well, it there, obviously, but yeah, it was Scotland very did have it. room, like yeah. you said, rooms. We, we have the exterior, mm-hmm. we have driving to the castle, the exterior of the castle. We have the Highland Games a tr- Which is tournament. Cool. Yep. We, we do have that. And then we have a little village down below. But at the same time, we also ah, but you're have... right. Like we don't, we, we've, we've got a wrestling ring in the Highland games. We don't learn about, we don't learn about the, you know, the food stalls that could be there. We don't know about the musicians. We hear the drum and the fife in the distance, but we don't know the bagpipes, what, what's going on with the people. Might as well have been like Macbeth times. Yeah, but like we, we could just take, Bond could have easily just taken a walk up and down to see the food stalls and to, you know, to talk to some of the traditional uh, bakers and, you know, the musicians. He could have done that. I mean, it wouldn't have been a big deal to have him befriend somebody from the community that maybe could have helped him, you know, in the Fleming world, we might have gone there. But no, Gardner's not interested. It's just, it's just straight ahead. You know, it's, it's very straight ahead. I think it would be interesting if they had Bond able to leave the castle confines while he was there and, you know, mm. go down into, like, the village and mm-hmm. be perfectly mm-hmm. comfortable, but then realize that the whole village is in support of the Laird. I think that would That's be right. really cool. Yeah. But then would yeah. it have, like, that live and let die effect where, like, all of the Scotsmen are bad guys. Yeah. And I, yeah. I don't think they wanted to have that. No, they didn't. And then you would have also had, like, a Graham Greene story, like the confidential agent. <laughs> he had to hide behind gardens and stuff like that. When everybody True. turned on him. Yeah. Hide in the heat. Well, I went um I went for three and a half for my locations because and I know that's kind of a, a it doesn't sound like I'm going that high with my description, but one of the things I did like about it, I liked how well researched the roads were. I thought that was something that really stood out here. Like it was like I was reading an AA guide when he took that drive up. You remember in remember in Skyfall, right, when um Tanner's planned that route, right? And Q's planned that route north. They're working to plan the the route for Bond and M to escape up the A9. I felt like yeah. Gardner really knew the roads up to the islands and up near that sort of uh, Argyle and Butte area. You know, I thought he really knew what he was doing up there past um, Fort William and, and whatnot up in the highlands. So I enjoyed that stuff. And I did think Perpignan was a really nice, different place to be. And I, I credit Gardner because let's face it, right? We've like, what's this, 15 novels in now, 15 books in. You've got to find new places to go. You've got to be a bit different. And this was a neat thing. And it was special and Bond had some knowledge of it. I just wish we had lingered there. So I'm crediting the places, even though there wasn't a lot of that travel porn that, that we like from the Bond stories. I'm crediting it, maybe being a bit generous, but I'm going to stick to 3.5, 3. 3.5. That's what I that's what I put for the exact same reasons that you said. Oh, we don't usually see eye to eye on our Bond novels quite this closely, but this is cool. Okay, well, hmm. let's finish it off then, my man, with equipment. There's lots of it in this story. I gave this a five. I thought the equipment within this story oh, was wow. awesome, wow. and nice. I uh, and uh, I just enjoyed every bit of it. And the and Gardner used it so well in the narrative too. 
Uh, okay. I think my favorite equipment, actually, and this is, I thought the Nightfinder goggles were awesome. I yeah, love that they were really wearing cool. like those goggles and driving in the dark and be able to, you know, uh, it was able to almost, you know, to uh, have that one up over his opponents mm-hmm. uh, that were pursuing him with those goggles because that was the best way to escape, right? And um, yeah. it was, even though like he was tricked in the end because of the, of the excavation, um, it was still mm-hmm. pretty cool that he was using them. But also, this goes out to the uh, the belt with the paper currency you hidden in the strap, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then that in the buckle cool. it opens up, really and then like that, that knife well. inside the buckle that was really so intuitive. I, I really yeah. enjoyed that. Yeah. And although we didn't see a lot of the car's equipment, we learned a lot about it. And I can't help but wonder if this is Gardner setting up for that Saab to be more important in his later books. You know, it's because his there's lots Aston Martin, in that his car. Lotus. Yeah. Yeah, Aldi does here. He drives it into a pit, and we don't really get to enjoy much of it. But no. I think in the in the forthcoming books, maybe we're going to see more of it. I didn't go quite as high as you did with the equipment, though. Um, but yeah, even though we've I love got, the that, we got that scene, we've got that scene with uh, cute too, like you were saying, with the the mood lighting and the bed turning into the spa and all the rest of it. You know, so yeah, some cool stuff in here for sure. I went three and a half. I went three and a half, yeah. but. Uh, because I didn't think they all had agency. I thought a lot of it was just kind of color on the page and it didn't go anywhere. But right. you're definitely right with the money belt and the little knife, which comes in handy in a couple of different scenes. And there's some chat about guns. He's got different guns here as well. So there's yeah, he has lots the of brownie. He has the he has like a Ruger like a Ruger Magnum uh, revolver, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And then he and then he doesn't use the Walther PPK because they like jam all the time. Apparently, that's is, right. Is what, yeah. Yeah. yeah, is what he was saying. And then of course the Dunhill lighter is another one too because it has the mm-hmm. knockout spray he uses to beat Caber. <laughs> that's clever. Part of me yeah. wanted him to yeah. beat Caber in the fight to outwit him yeah. with with his like with his speed or something or with his uh-huh. patience and wear Caber down, but. Gardner just goes yeah. for the gadget instead. I found that kind yeah, of yeah. Gardner's but. Bond is informed by Roger Moore films, man. Like, let's face it, right? Yeah, Gardner's Bond is just going to do what he's got to do to get out of there. And uh, if he has to use a gadget, then all the better because it's marketable for readers and marketable for cinema goers, right? Yeah, hundred percent. But that's cool. Okay, buddy. So, um, I mean, this was a, a whistle-stop tour through it, but I'm really pleased that we uh, we took the time to read the book and to record the show for, for listeners. And uh, our total scores, then, are angles for License Renewed. I'm at a 16 overall, and you, my man, are at a... Oh, wow, wait for this. You are at a 17.5, so you like this one a little bit more. The individual scoring doesn't really add up to my enthusiasm <laughs> no. for the book. But no, that's okay. Still, but I'm glad. Sure. It's nice to see that you, you, went, that. you went big on the equipment. Yeah, cool. Maybe yeah. I'm lying to myself. Maybe this is the greatest mm-hmm. book ever written and I, I just can't admit it. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's, this is canon. This is English canon right here. <laughs> but it is, Josh, the first step in, a, in a, a long and hopefully fruitful adventure through these uh, uh, John Gardner books for ourselves and for our listeners on Bond by Numbers. But uh, hey, buddy, it's, it's been a good fun start, a good fun preface to season four. And we'll have our uh, compatriot, Jeff Chapman, back with us when we start the season with uh, new content coming soon. Yep. Yep. Yeah, we hope everybody's doing well. Thanks very much again for tuning in and checking out our episode on License Renewed. And we'll get you on Bond by Numbers because it will return very soon. Okay. <laughs> I knew I could count on you for something like that.